Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by the new voice-activated sync in your Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. And Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. This week on the show, tips for shooting in the snow, Nikon D3S goes into space, and an exclusive interview with the CMO of Live Books, John Philpin. All this and more on This Week in Photography, number 121. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to yet another uh, episode of This Week in Photography. This is Alex uh, sitting in for Frederick, who is, uh, he is going to be out today. But we have many of the usual suspects, and uh, one becoming a usual suspect. Uh, from uh, New York, we've got Steve Simon. Hey, Steve. Hi, everybody. Good to be back. And, um, oops, and I, and I, I was, I was so organized, and then I, Sorry, I'm 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 quickly trying to edit <laughs> That's here. Me. Uh, yeah, there there we go. And uh, also we have uh, coming in from uh, Hernando Beach, Hernando, <laughs> Hermosa. James, <laughs> <laughs> reaction. Uh, we've got Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. And uh, it's, is, is it Hermosa. beautiful down there? Yes, that's why they call it. Hermosa, because it means beautiful. Ah, oh, very good. Yeah, no, uh, no, we have none Bastard. of the snow or anything that the rest of the country is feeling. I wouldn't have normally had. You know, it was funny on Friday. I, uh, I was, um, I saw everyone leaving my hotel. They were all like leaving like little uh, uh, rats out of a burning, uh, burning <laughs> building. <laughs> I mean, the burning ship. They were all just taken off, and uh, and I, I should have done the same thing but no i didn't my sh- my flight was canceled then and then i got the full brunt of it it was it was awesome <laughs> so also um and joseph i don't actually know where you're coming in from joseph lanaski and where i am in pasadena california outside oh. of los angeles so yet another beautiful day for you right that's right yeah i was just complaining that over the weekend i was out christmas shopping and the rest of the shoppers were wearing shorts and eating ice cream <laughs> I hate you. Yeah, I got a lot of negative feedback on that comment on Facebook. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so the um, uh, did we now? Did for those of us that were in the snow, uh, this is uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the questions here is: did, did we get to shoot any? I think Steve, you shot some snow, right? You got to, you got some. Sh- I did. How did it? How yes, did it go? I did. I was. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I missed last week, but I was um, uh, following the Olympic torch in Canada. I had an assignment, and boy, did it snow a few times, actually, in Montreal and parts of Ontario. So, yes, I shot in the snow, and it was it was fantastic. What are your tips for shooting in the snow, for all of us? I mean, for any of you who have been shooting, I think all of us have shot in the snow at some some point. Uh, but, Steve, what are your tips? We'll go kind of around the around the table. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess my, my main tip tip is if you're going to be out in any kind of weather, you need to be comfortable so that you can just concentrate on shooting and not worried about the fact that your ear just fell off or you lost a <laughs> finger from frostbite. So you really need to be comfortable. You got to be dressed for it. Um, the other thing too is, uh, you know, again, I've, I've got professional cameras that are very well sealed. So even if they do get a little bit wet, it's not going to be a deal breaker. I definitely try and keep them dry. I do have those rain covers, uh, and in the snow, they, they can be used pretty well. But in snow, it's actually a little easier than rain because you can sort of 
shoo away the snow that uh, that hits your camera. So I I have kind of a, a Gore-Tex oversized uh, shell that I wear that I try and keep my cameras under, and I pull them out when I need to, and I let them hang when I don't, and and that seems to work really well. I don't have to worry so much, and I'm always ready uh, for it for for the next shot. Um, Exposure-wise, of course, you have to be careful because uh, your, your meter is going to be fooled. So I tend to, to shoot with aperture priority, and for the most part, um, I will check my histogram, get a sense of what I'm shooting, and often have my exposure compensation ramped up to plus one full stop, which usually does the trick, or it did the trick uh, for a lot of the shooting that I was doing last weekend. And, and lastly, um, I'm also mindful of, of the fact that when I do change atmosphere, so to speak, from the cold of outside to inside, uh, that uh, condensation can put you out of business if your camera lens starts to fog up. So I will try and have a plastic bag that I can seal the camera in as I move from the cold to the warmer temperature. And the condensation forms outside the, the bag and not inside where the camera is. And this lets me kind of shoot... Um, a lot faster. I don't have to wait as long for, for everything to to uncondense. Well, so, isn't another problem that it, it, you can actually damage the camera if you go in and out, right? So you go, you come in, it condenses, and you go back out and it freezes. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not a good thing. Again, you know, these professional cameras are, are, are built to, to sort of handle these kinds of things, but you definitely want to minimize it. And if you don't have uh, a robust uh, top-of-the-line professional camera, it's more susceptible to, to damage, so you want to be extra careful. I know. I, but, I, I, uh, I kind of ran into that in Brazil just going from a, a very well air-conditioned uh, uh, room, and I walked outside, and it was you know very humid and, and hot, and immediately my camera was all fogged up. But, you know, it's so great to be out there in the snow, and there's a lot of great photo opportunities to get. And when you're sort of warm and comfortable and your equipment is fairly well-protected, uh, you've got extra batteries. Again, the professional cameras, uh, top-of-the-line cameras, have batteries that, that literally will, will go all day, even in very, very cold temperatures. But, yeah, you want to have your, your um, extra batteries handy. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, a wonderful thing. Then you can really concentrate on, on shooting and not worry about uh, your own sort of comfort and, and worry about your camera uh, you know, having problems. Ron, Ron how, do you, how do you handle... No, I'm, most of the stuff that, that Steve mentioned, but you know, for me, I think the the real fun of shooting in in this sort of extreme conditions is just the fact that it changes so many of the things that you're accustomed to seeing on a daily basis. You know, you get that you know light dusting of snow across the top of trees, or just even close up stuff. You know, weird little details that suddenly change when you've got a layer of snow, or even you know, an ice storm that's come through and just coated everything with ice. It really, it just sort of changes everything. And stuff that you've probably walked by a thousand times and it's just not interesting like you know a fire hydrant or something suddenly gets a whole different perspective on it so you kind of need to remember to take a new look at the world if it's covered with snow joe do you have anything to uh to add to that not really anything to add and steve hit all the points and the big thing i was going to point out was of course the the fogging up of the lens and not to go in and out of the situations and i think as as just kind of amateur photographers who are running around having a day in the snow, that can be really easy if they're getting in and out of their car. And that in itself can be a, be a risk. So I guess the only advice there is if you are going to get it in and out of your car, turn off the heat, roll down the windows, and just suffer with the cold in the car. You'd probably be healthier anyway if you're not jumping in and out of that heat all the time. <laughs> yeah, one, one thing I'll just add, Alex, and, and I forgot to mention, is that I've got these 
mitts that sort of have like holes cut out for your fingers. Mm-hmm. And that te- tends to work really well because you, you want to be able to get to the controls of your camera and at the same time not expose your fingers for too long. So do you have you the do you have the uh, do you have the ones that flip open so it looks like a mitten? And then yeah, it, exactly. Oh, yeah, man. that's that's what I was using. They they were they were great. I mean, I got them at uh, Target for like two bucks or something, and and they work fine. I had some uh, uh, you know more uh, uh, rated uh, gloves, but those mitts uh, for the most part uh, worked worked perfectly, and those were the ones I chose. I definitely went to the wrong place for them. I I uh, I was in Baltimore, and I was in you know. It was, it was snowing, you know, and, and uh, I was freezing my butt off. And so I just walked into the first thing that opened, what happened to be Urban Outfitters, and bought exactly those, except they're like, you know, they look cool, I guess, but they're like 25 bucks or $30. And it's kind of cool. They look like they're knitted on the outside, but there's neoprene on the inside, which actually turned out to be, they looked kind of nice and they were very warm. So I will say that. And of course, you know, being in DC, when you're in the airport, you're talking to a lot of um, uh, folks that are in the service. And, uh, yeah. And, and of course they went, Oh yeah, yeah. Those are great. Cause they keep your hands warm. And then when you need to get to the trigger <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, exactly, except my trigger slightly different. So, um, no, those are, those are, uh, are fantastic. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's very good. You know, I, I, uh, I didn't get out that much. I took my camera out, but I just noticed that I was so afraid. It was so heavy. The snow was coming down so heavy. I was afraid of getting too much water on it, you know, and I just didn't, I wasn't totally prepared. I, I it, it wasn't something that I was, I wasn't really going for a shoot. You know, but um, it is a lot of fun, and hopefully people will uh, post some photos, take some pictures. Yeah. There's a lot of snow out there right now. And don't lick your tripod leg. It, your tongue <laughs> is not <laughs> It's okay if it's I carbon that fiber. The hard way. Double dog dare you. So, um, so uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyway, uh, so we've got some great news coming up here in just a second. But before we get to that, I want to thank uh, Ford. Um, Ford Sync, of course, listens to your voice, uh, and you don't have to use your you don't have to use your hands at all. I mean, you can make calls on your mobile phone. You can find and play music on your podcast. You can get turn by turn navigation. You can access real time traffic and weather, and it's all hands free on the Sync. And this is something that is uh, you know just Leo's got it, and it is so. Um, 21st century you feel like we finally got there uh and and i think that what we're seeing with the ford sync stuff is really stuff we're going to see in every car out there but ford is a bit uh you know years from now two or three years from now when they've all figured out that they should do this it is the definitely the best uh, connection um that uh that, that i've seen so far uh for any of your mobile devices and all and all those other pieces that you need so i'm um, definitely check that out and you can get more details at uh sync myridepodcast.com once again that's sync s-y-n-c myridepodcast.com and now uh for our uh our, we got a couple brief stories here uh, we're going to kind of move through them quickly but um but the uh, nikon d3s uh in a 14 to 24 millimeter 2.8 is headed into space steve have you did you see much of this other than um, the headline well, I- there I just think that, uh, you know, if you're going to send a camera to space, that's a great combo. I had my mitts on a D3S and a 14 to 24. And, uh, you know, there's just no question that uh, the D3S is is literally the best camera I've ever used. I took some shots um, in extremely next to no light at ISO 12800 and uh, processed them very quickly without really doing any noise reduction. And the files were clean and usable, and it's it's really um, though your dynamic range is reduced, and and you have to be careful with your exposure. You got to really nail it properly. Um, it works at twelve thousand uh, eight hundred. Uh, so I, 
for the assignment that I was I was uh, working on, I was in such a variety of different lighting conditions. I ended up putting the auto ISO uh, feature into play, and uh, that just assured me that whenever the light sort of went down, I would set my minimum shutter speed to two fiftieth of a second because I wanted to make sure I, I had sharp uh, subjects, and uh, because they were always moving, and that was my minimum shutter speed. And when it needed to, it would just go up and up. And even in low light, um, I had no qualms about it, you know, working at 7,200 or 6,400 or even 12,800. So um, I think that uh, Nassau has uh, kind of uh, made the right decision at this time to, to bring that camera up into space, which I guess it's kind of dark there. I mean, I, I really feel I, it's a little dark. Yeah, you got to watch, you know, watch for the uh, the. Now, the one thing that'll be interesting is that a lot of times what I've noticed when I shoot at high ISO is a lot of grain, especially in blacks. You know, you get mm. abnormally mm. high amounts of grain uh, as the camera kind of reaches for that, and so it'll be interesting to see what comes back. But I think that, you know, I I think right now someone asked me over the weekend while I was shooting, you know, Nikon or Canon, and there's always this back and forth. I I really think that Nikon right now, when it comes to low light and all purpose, if you're just still shooting. You know, I think right now has the lead. You know, I, th- I really think that they're they're doing a. You know, if you're looking for a hybrid, I, I most people that I've talked to have been using Nikon's and Canons and everything else and going back and forth with video have not been as excited about the Nikon video implementation yet. Even though they they got it kind of first, uh, some of the implementation isn't quite as good. Um, uh, but I think so. I think that it depends on whether you're looking for that convergence or not. But I think that as a as a pure still camera, um, you know, I think I'm hoping to see. I'm hoping to see Canon because I have a lot of Canon glass and I have a lot of Canon. Now I have a lot of Canon cameras. Um, I'm hoping to see Canon kind of pick up that, pick up that speed a little bit. Yeah, one other thing I'll quickly mention: the the confidence it gives you being able to shoot at those high ISOs means that you know in kind of uncertain situations uh, where your focus you know may be a little bit off, you can defer and and you know have both uh, fast shutter speed and depth of field using a high ISO when it when it's needed. So I mean. There's really nothing you're not going to be able to get when you have that ability to work at such sensitivity. So it's cool that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a very odd thing for us to move away from, you know, it used to be always the two things we play with was shutter and aperture and really being able to go to auto ISO and just letting it, you know, figure it out is quite a thing. So um, so uh, also in the news, we've got uh, Adobe Camera Raw uh, 5.6 and uh, Photoshop uh, Lightroom 2.6 are now available. They uh, support... The Canon EOS uh, 7D, the uh, the EOS 1D Mark IV, and the Nikon D3S. Who's? I'm kind of curious. I, I think we are all uh, aperture users. Are we all aperture users? Mm-hmm. Ron. Yeah. You know, usually Fred is. Yeah. I mean, Fred used to be the product manager for Lightroom. So right. <laughs> Fred usually is is the one. We're working on him. Yeah, we're working on Frederick. Oh, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, is that my uh, um, my sister, you know, I sent her both of them, and it's one of those things that she. Uh, I think she installed um, Lightroom first. <laughs> so I think she likes she likes Lightroom. She likes doing a lot of the little corrections. I do think that you can do more in Lightroom on a day-to-day basis, you know, like with a lot of the correction stuff that they have. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree. Um, you know, I need what I need is something that manages my library more than I need uh, editing because I'm still kind of old-fashioned and very Photoshop-driven. Um, but, uh, but I think that, you know, I- I'm really excited that Lightroom keeps on progressing so quickly, uh, and I'm hoping that Aperture will progress someday quickly too yes not that we're you know waiting with bated <laughs> breath so uh but anyway so um that's out if, you, if you've got those i check it out also there was also an update oh, to, yeah, uh for apple for the the raw updater for apple that now supports the 7d i don't know if they hit the 1d mark 4 or not 
but they finally hit the 7D in a software update just a couple days ago. Oh, fantastic. So I, that wasn't in our news, but that's, that's great. So um, now most of the cameras are now fully supported across the board uh, through either Apple or uh, Adobe, right? Because I, mean, I think we were... So we weren't able... I must have just I just I must have just updated it because we've been bringing stuff in um, through the seventy for a while, um, but mostly video I guess. So uh, so anyway so um, so that's also available on the on the Apple side. Any other things related to that? No. And uh, we also have a uh, the Canon picture style editor and EOS uh, utility updaters are posted. So this supports of course seventy one D Mark IV. Um, and on, on a side note, firmware updates for the uh, 5D Mark II and 1D uh, Mark III related to the Wi-Fi transmitter grip uh, have also, and some minor noise fixes in the bulb exposures um, for the Mark for the 5D Mark II are updated. So if you if you, uh, if you need any of those things, um, definitely check that out, and uh, and we'll uh, um, you know check it out, download it, and uh, and move forward. Uh, also, uh, we've got. Uh, LensRentals.com and ZipLens are merging. So uh, LensRental.com and ZipLens uh, announced that they are going to be a single company um, under the LensRentals.com, which of course is a better uh, URL uh, banner. Um, while it's going to take while it's going to take effect immediately, uh, all current ZipLens orders will be fulfilled as scheduled. And so, um, so you know, it it uh, um, you know th- this is a great service. Do you guys use uh, rent? Do you guys rent lenses very often? I've used lens rentals a few times. Whoa. Love them. Whoops. So, go ahead. Uh, Joe, Joe, Me, okay. Joe, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, lens rentals I've used a few times, and uh, and they're great. Absolutely great. And I do prefer to rent from them than renting locally when I can, when I have the time, because uh, it's definitely cheaper. Yeah. But if you need something last minute, then you know you don't really have that, that luxury. Uh, but it's a great service. Absolutely fantastic. I actually rented lights. I rented, I think, three uh, 580 of uh, uh, Canon flashes and some light stands and a bunch of stuff like that from them. Fantastic. Really? So, so you yeah, can, I, I, didn't re- I, I didn't realize you could rent lights from lens rentals. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I totally agree with Joseph. Uh, I've used uh, LensRentals.com. I, I even think that uh, there might be a, a slight discount for TWIP listeners. If you mention it to them, I don't know what the merger or not, but Roger who runs it uh, is a very knowledgeable guy. If you go to their website, there's some great, um, resources there where he talks you know because he deals with all these lenses um he 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 talks often about uh, some of the the things or the 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 myths that people have about you know back focusing and all this kind of stuff with lenses and uh you know it's he his prices are cheaper than than here in new york if i were to rent particularly camera bodies they're very expensive um it's much cheaper uh, dealing with them and you can keep the 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 piece of equipment for like 7 days or 10 days or whatever so so it really is a a wonderful thing because i think a lot of uh, amateur photographers it's hard to justify spending you know x thousands of dollars to own something that maybe you're not going to really use all the time but if you've got a big trip planned you know you can incorporate that into your budget and uh if you really love what you rented, uh, you can ultimately buy one. It's a great way to test it out. I think it's a great, absolutely a great way to figure out whether this is the right lens for you. You know, I, mean, I think that a lot of times, a lot of these lenses are fifteen hundred dollars, or two thousand dollars, or eight hundred dollars, and being able to just, you know, get one, spend a week with it, and decide is this something I'm going to use all the time. I think it's a great way to use it. If and also just to extend your current library run. Well, especially for people that are starting out and want to do this as a business, you know, because at some point, if you're trying to do it as a businessman, you've got to move away from that mode of, I love photography and I want cool stuff, 
to just looking at profit and loss and you know the cost of doing business. Uh, and this basically lets you say, all right, I can book a job and I know that my fixed cost for renting the equipment I need is going to be this. And you, you've got a very clear understanding of, uh, of how much you can charge for a job and still make money even if you have to include renting gear in the process. So anybody that's starting out, you, know, you don't have to go nuts with buying the best gear. You can just make sure you're familiar with whatever you're going to be renting and then get it uh, on a sort of demand basis. Especially with something that's not very complex like a lens. I mean, the lens is complex in the way it's constructed, but it's not complex in the way it's set up. I mean, for instance, one of the reasons that we tend not to rent, like on things that we, like camera bodies, we tend to like to own those um, because we don't like the way people set their cameras up. You know, and so, so we get these video cameras that aren't, you know, that, that aren't set up the way we like them or, or so on and so forth. We still rent, like we rent a red. We're not going to buy a red right now. We have a camera that's close to the same quality, uh, you know, but we, um, but we rent it when we need it. But when it comes to still cameras, uh, we tend to own them because we don't want we don't know what people did to them. You know, as far as the setup goes. Uh, but something as simple as a lens and as expensive, you really have to decide: Are you really renting? Like we don't buy anything until we're using it often enough, where the rental starts to turn into a pain. You know, and even then, for some like Hollywood lives on rentals. If you look at like Panavision, you know Hollywood lives on rentals, and the reason is is because you know how much it's going to cost for that job. You're not worried about you know the the idea is is if I'm if I have a job that's coming through. And my co- my costs are exactly this. I don't have to deal with um, a lot of capital costs related to what you know what we're doing. Kind of what Ron was talking about. And you know, I think people need to realize that it's not at all inappropriate to just list your costs for a particular shoot and pass that on to whoever's hiring you. You know, be, you know, if you get hired to if you hire somebody to do a job and you see that as a line item, you know, that a specific sort of strange lens, like a tilt shift lens, was rented as part of the job because that's what was needed you know you can just put that down there's a line on and pass the cost directly on uh and, and nobody's going to blink at that because they understand they had special needs for this particular shoot right and usually Actually, what- ron I'd, I'd take it a little bit farther than that um i mean when i do my invoicing for commercial shoots i'm billing a rental fee for all the gear even the gear that i currently own i yeah. don't it's not broken out separately so whether i have to rent a lens or not the client doesn't know that they don't need to know that they just know that they're paying a rental fee for all the equipment that is being used on that shoot I don't, and I don't, I don't line item it. So I just charge, you know, people ask me, you know, with, when I'm handling shoots, I, uh, people ask me how much is it going to cost? And I tell them how much it's going to cost. Now I use that calculation and, and we, we budget everything against the idea that we have to rent the space, all the equipment, all the other stuff, all that's budgeted in at the market rate, uh, even if whether we own it or not. And the reason we do that is to make sure that, um, if something broke, if, if a package didn't show up when we were shooting it, you know, somewhere, if whatever, and we had to go out and buy it, we didn't, we wouldn't lose money on it, you know? And, and so that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have to, we budget everything against market rate of what the rentals are and that, and then we also calculate that back against how, uh, you know, how quickly our hardware is paying itself off, you know, cause we did put I a big that, chunk that, into it. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me as a cost of doing business. But I'm curious, like uh, Joseph, have you ever been called out on that, you know, by a client who said, hey, I mean, you're a photographer, you should have all this equipment. So why do we have to pay extra for that? Or nope. generally speaking, uh, your clients, that's just the way, uh, the way of doing business. Just the way of doing business. It's, mm-hmm. And it's surprising oftentimes how often uh, you think that the clients are going to push back on stuff and then they're like, yeah, that's fine. I mean, you know, it's, as I said, we, we try to, for most of our clients, we try to minimize the number of light items <laughs> that they have. We, they usually just have a, this is what we're going to do for you. And this is what we're going to charge you. And, and we consider, um, oftentimes how we get there to be proprietary information because, uh, oftentimes what we're doing is we're cutting, 
cutting this and breaking this and moving this and changing this. And, and a lot of that has to do with our production pipe. And so we, we tend not to, not to, um, expose that information. And it's just, everyone has a different way of, of handling it. It's, it's, I, I'm afraid I, I come from the, uh, um, my, uh, my great, great grandfather got a job because he was able to figure out how to reproduce a kind of plate glass just from the orders <laughs> that came into the, into the, into the, uh, into a given warehouse and saved PPG. Um, which is, uh, so, uh, um, uh, but the, uh, but the idea of, I don't, I don't usually like to line item anything. I kind of feel like someone, someone orders spaghetti. I'm not going to tell them how much the, the tomatoes cost. So, um, it's not, that's not their problem is the tomatoes or the pasta or whatever, you know, they just ordered spaghetti and that's what we brought out. So anyway, there's, we, there's definitely different approaches to that. And books like the best business practices are a great resource that'll tell you the you know, ups and downs of doing it either way. So it really just depends on what you're what you're doing. And it's really your personality too. I mean, it's just, it's just how you like to work. I mean, and there are some clients that really want to have all that detail, um, you know, and, and they want to see all those details. And some people are more comfortable just showing their clients that and, and giving them a breakdown. And then there's other clients that just want to, you know, what they want is a number that isn't going to change. And there's risks when you do that quote, there's, you take different kinds of risks. When I give a, a solid number of this is how much I'm going to charge for a given production, I'm taking a risk. I'm taking a risk of, of what it looks like. Now, obviously, that's within certain ranges. If you change the spec, I'll charge you a different amount. But if things go bad or if things aren't, you know, something goes sideways. Now, I usually say, well, that's something I'm going to handle. But it is something that uh, it's a very different way of handling it. And we've been bitten in the butt by doing it the way I do it. Um, you know, so there, so I can definitely see the other side of it. It's just the way I, I know that when I order something, I don't want to know what the details are. I just want to know how much it is. And I want it to stay that way. <laughs> and also just, just, uh, you know, our listeners should know that, um, from a tax, uh, point of view as a business, um, if you rent equipment, uh, you can really write that off, uh, uh, I think in full, um, rather than you know capital expensing uh, buying equipment. So there's another advantage to that as well. Also hidden in some con- in some com- countries, no, some companies, some states. That's what I wanted to say. Uh, in uh, uh, hidden in some states are a lot of tax breaks for if you are doing professional rental and also if you're doing professional purchases. Uh, there are different rates. Uh, for you to, um, as far as paying taxes. Uh, and, and I know in California, there are some, some rates that you can get if you're doing, for instance, film production. Uh, there, it, it, you, can, um, you have to fill out some forms and do some stuff and make sure that you're all on the up and up. But if you, if you really do have a business here, um, you know, that's something to also consider. Joseph, you were going to say something? Um, I forgot. I did have one more thing to point out, though, on the... Oh, no, no, I know what I was going to say about the, the quotes. You were saying that you submit a quote and, and you know, sometimes it ends up going over. Um, just on a note on that, that's why I don't submit quotes. I submit estimates. Right. Right. We, we work with uh, most of our clients are uh, uh, large corporations. And, um, and there's a big when – I, when I submit a spec of work, it is – that's the number. <laughs> it's like you know like once i once i put that number in it it is like that's what it's going to be and uh and uh, the chances i you know chances of me getting anything else unless there's a major change is so there's a lot of details that you have to put into it um individuals we can you know, oftentimes you can have those discussions and i try to make sure that you know my approach and this is probably a whole we could probably do a whole twip on this um you know we, we, i think we are yeah yeah exactly uh, <laughs> but but i think that that's a you know it it is a like what people are comfortable with um you know we try to make it as carefree as possible for our clients to not have to think about much of that detail. Uh, it also gives us opportunities to, to increase the margin if we're able to fi- find a more efficient way to do it. 
um, without without the quality being affected at all. So it's um, uh, you know that's what we try to keep on. And so that's what you're kind of going back. And a lot of times, sometimes we've done projects for no margin because uh, that's the because that's how we set it up. So um, yeah, it's just it it's uh, as I said, there's a whole twip there um, that maybe we'll we'll schedule in the future. Right. And if I can just mm-hmm. to go back to the, what started this whole topic, the topic of rentals. You'd mentioned uh, one of the problems with renting bodies is you don't know what people have done with them and how the settings are. I just want to point out to our listeners that if you are renting bodies you can rent one get it configured the way you want and then most of the camera bodies will allow you to save the settings to a cf card or whatever and the next time you rent that body again you can just program the settings back yeah our our the the flight check on most of the time when we rent cameras is to reset it you know reset the camera and then change these settings you know there's like a list of the eight settings that we want to have that that need to be changed from the point of reset so reset the entire camera to ground zero and then add these things to get it back to where we want it and uh but saving it to the cf card is even better so um so we've got an interview coming up here uh, but right before we get to that uh, we want to thank of course uh, audible.com they are the leading provider of spoken word entertainment audible has over fifty thousand titles to choose from uh that you can download and play back anywhere so this is not something that you know it's not a you know streaming it's not anything else you can download it and i uh i kind of live inside of some audible book all the time i'm still in the glass castle i'm uh that's what i'm listening to right now it's just an intensely good book uh, uh ron ron are you you're usually listening to something in audible uh yeah i just just uh, listened to a real quick one which was the sort of classic novel novella heart of darkness by joseph conrad this is the uh, the story that Apocalypse Now was sort of loosely based on, and uh, I think we mentioned Apocalypse Now a few shows back, uh, and somewhere along the line I was like, you know, I really should go back and check out the original book that came from. So I did that. It's a, it's a short, it's a novella. It's only about a four-hour listen. Uh, and, you know, it, it was much older than uh, the Vietnam War, where Apocalypse Now was had a setback in colonial Africa. But it's, it's yeah, in the Congo. And, and, it's, and it's fun to sort of see the... Uh, how they adapted certain things to make the movie, and you know what they changed, and uh, but it still has all the same characters, and he's still going to find Kurtz up river and that sort of thing. So uh, it's good and it's well read. I know I find that I now I just if I go into a bookstore and I see a book that has uh, a lot of text and not very many pictures, I immediately decide I really could listen to that. I really don't need to read it. I don't I don't have any interest in reading it. I'm not you know I'd rather be listening to it while I'm walking around the airport, being delayed and waiting for my be told what flight I'm on rather than uh, actually try to figure that out. So, um, so anyway, uh, audiblepodcast.com slash twip. That's audiblepodcast.com slash T W I P. And, uh, you can get a free book of your choice. So if you don't like these books, uh, if there's something else you're interested in, definitely check it out. And I'd really would, if you, if you're looking at books that you think you're going to read and you're, if you're like me, what happens is you buy the book cause you're excited. Um, you know, like, Oh, that's something I should get into. And then you never actually read it. Uh, now I can buy I can buy Audible books that I that'll take me the next year to get to, uh, but but I can I don't have to carry them around I can just have them all on my iPod I've got you know probably fifteen or twenty books on my iPod and I just kind of go through them as I uh, it depends on how much I'm driving and how much I'm walking and how much that type of thing to figure out how I'm uh, and cleaning that's why that's why I listen to my Audible books AudiblePodcast dot com slash t w i p and now we're gonna have an interview with uh, the live books. CMO, John Philpin. 
I'm here with John Philpin. He's the chief marketing officer over at Live Books. They're a San Francisco-based company that specializes in helping folks like you, photographers, get their work in front of other people uh, by way of some pretty gorgeous-looking websites. So uh, John has agreed to come on the show to talk to us about some of the changes that have happened in the company over the last year and also just uh, some nuts and bolts stuff about why a photographer would want to choose a company like Live Books over doing it themselves with you know either off-the-shelf solutions or maybe even software they already have on their computer. So, John, thank you for coming on This Week in Photography. Thank you, Frederick, for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, definitely a pleasure. So let's, let's kick off uh, with just background on Live Books. For the photographers out there that may not have heard of the company, what's your mission? Uh, Live Books, um, I, I guess for, we've been around for a while now, and historically we provided uh, portfolio websites for photographers. So the name itself comes from the portfolio book, and recognizing the world's moving to the online world, it's put your book online, present it in the best possible way, and we believe we have the solution for that. So that's the history, that's where we come from. Yeah, so... And, and presumably, you know, back in the early days of the web, everyone was struggling with HTML, uh, trying to figure out how to display things on the web. Folks were struggling with Flash when that came out, and or Director, then Flash, and you know, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, looking at live books, why would they? Why would a why would a photographer that is say just jumping into photography? Maybe they're throwing their hat into the ring and they're, they want to start doing weddings or whatever. What, why would they want to use a service like Livebooks over, say, doing something off the shelf like building a website with, say, .Mac or MobileMe or something like that? Well, um, you said you know, back in the day people have done the things, but it used to be so hard. I would actually argue that it's, it's even tougher these days. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, I, I come out of the technology industry, not the photographic industry. And one of the one of the things I always say to people is that you don't know how amazing it is the things that we do until you've actually tried to do it yourself. So yes, you can buy product off the shelf, inverted commas, that sort of and get products and run it. But even once you've built your website, you then have to host it somewhere. If you have somebody else build it, will you be able to find them to do the updates? There's a million and one reasons why you wouldn't go that direction. And if you think about it. Um, you know, from the largest companies to the smallest companies, the idea of building something from scratch with whatever tool that you have um, ju just is something that's a thing of the past. And, and people these days are just recognizing that they want to focus on what they do. Photographers want to spend their time taking photographs and earning money from that. Why on earth would they want to spend all their time, and I mean all their time, building and maintaining a website? Yeah, you're right. It, it gets very involved and. Um, and can Certainly get very hairy, hairy because uh, I've been down that road. So what what happens though if a, you're a photographer, you um, you know you decide okay, live books is for me. You go through the design process, you get your site up, and you love it. And then a year from now, because you're a right brain person, <laughs> you decide you decide I no longer like the way that looks. You know that's ugly to me now. Where it was beautiful a year ago, I want it changed. What do they do? Uh, well, I would question why you want to change because when you actually build a site with live books, we spend a lot of um, time working with the photographer or the designer, who, whoever it is that's looking for the site to be built, to understand their brand and their incarnation of how they represent themselves. 
Um, to come along a year later and say, I don't like the way it looks, kind of is like Apple waking up one day and say, you know what, I don't think we like this Apple logo anymore. Yeah. So you move it along and you change it and you modify it, but, but essentially the guts of your website, that, that is your online presence. That's, somebody said to me the other day, the, the, the website is, is, the, is the view into the soul of the company. So I would not recommend that you keep on changing it around. What you do need to do is change the content around, and, and that's what we offer, and you can do that all on the fly, but essentially you're looking to build a website that is your brand presence. So it's your, it's your look, your feel, your logo, your your fonts, your colors, and everything that you do with any any customer out there is is consistent. Yeah. And uh, then you keep the content flexed and, and moving at the same time. Now, John, what about what about newer technologies, or not even newer technologies, just mainstream things like? Uh, social media, for example, blogs and Twitter, and and you know now Facebook has opened up their API to allow some sort of some some level of integration and and weaving in the content from their service into other things. Are there any plans for live books to allow that sort of thing? For example, if I start a live book site and I want this integrated, gorgeous gallery, but I also want my visitors to be able to see my blog, and but I also I want it all under the same design. Um, is that possible today? Um, it's, it's not possible as in the single click on a link and away you go, you publish your gallery into Facebook. But remember, the people that we're dealing with are people that are professionals that sort of kind of want to know where their images end up. Yeah. Um, so, so we're very, we're very cautious about simply opening up the floodgates to you know twi- Twitter my pictures all over the web. That said, um, we, we can enable that um, in, in certain ways uh, to make things happen. Um, but, but the key for us is making sure that we are servicing our clients and our customers with what they need. So, so the key really is understanding um, that, that if, if they're going to big time into Facebook and they want to promote their galleries in there, then we'll start working towards that. So, so we have plans, absolutely. And uh, since we're broadcasting, I, I won't go into those in too much detail. <laughs> understood, understood. So uh, speaking more about just sort of integrating mainstream technologies into the, the sort of beautiful um, live books UI. And I say beautiful because I've seen a number of live book sites and they're all stellar. I mean, they all look really good. So bravo on that. Um, Thank you. And, but a lot of people and one of the one of the folks on Twitter has asked a guy named by the name of uh, Pat O'Brien wants to know what about SEO? You know, what about the are you know with a flash website? Presumably, it's a closed sort of thing to Google and Yahoo and Bing. Are are those engines able to index your pages, or are you just suffering because you made a decision to go flash? No, uh, in fact, we're well aware of that, and in fact, we're some of the best-tuned sites um, on the net, or certainly best-tuned photographic sites on the net are actually, in actual fact, uh, livebook sites. So we actually run mirror sites behind the scenes uh, in HTML, and that's what the crawlers come and index. Uh, we spend a lot of time in thinking about SEO because at the end of the day, um, it's great to have a website, but it's not great if nobody can find you. So we have partners that we work with that, that can index and tune, um, and uh, 
the whole site as it goes out of the box is you know gets you a long way towards that. So in fact, if you if you look at some of our materials, you'll find that we've got customers out there that talk about the fact they couldn't be found for years. They switched on live books, and in a few weeks they were getting searches out of Google coming to them. Uh, customers looking at their sites that they never heard of. So no, we're we're, we're highly engineered and highly tuned for the uh, for the search engine world, not just Google but the Yahoo and 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 even Bling. Bing, sorry, Bling. Yeah. yeah, that's a new search engine that's coming. <laughs> yeah. Now, what what about uh, so the SEO features and that optimization? Is that part of the baseline fee that they're paying, there's, or is it extra? There's, there's a baseline there, and then you can do even more. So remember, search search engine optimization is um, is not to be sort of handled by uh, by amateurs, if you will. So so we put a baseline in place. Um, and then we can actually offer you partners that we work with um, that will help you um, really tune it. So, for example, you're a commercial photographer specializing in outdoor. You really want to just focus in New Jersey. Uh, there's certain things that sort of are peculiar to you, and, and that's what you want to tune for. We can put you in touch with the people that can make that happen. And this is important because the more and more people that come onto our platform, um, you know, wedding photographer, uh, search on live books, only 10 people can be on the top 10. And and if you've got 10 live book sites up there, then the 11th won't feature on the top page. So we can't guarantee that. But not every photographer wants to be there. Uh, wedding photographer in California would want to have a different marketplace to wedding photographer in Atlanta. So, yeah. so it's that tuning that has to be done at, at an individual and personal level. That's what we help and work with, even, even as we're going active with the sites. Wow. And then partners beyond that. So, yeah, it's, very, it's a very technical world. What's the, what's the cost of, uh, of getting one of these sites up and going? Uh, well, right now, um, you can uh, come along to Livebooks, sign up, and 39 bucks a month gets you going. And that would be our new pre-design that we launched about four, four or five weeks ago. Wow. And how does, what, was the, what was the price before? Because I, I remember that it was really expensive. <laughs> it, was, it was really expensive before to get into a Livebook site. Now it's just 39 bucks. We never saw it as being really expensive because at the end of the day, it, 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 the, the, the cost of these things is about, you know, nobody buys these sites because they look pretty, they do nice things, it makes you feel good. People buy, put the money into a website to actually make money themselves. So we talk about return on investment and that's a very important part of our story. So the reason that people have historically spent thousands and thousands of dollars with us in doing all kinds of things is because they're getting returns on that investment. Yeah. Now, what we're doing with our pre-designs um, at 39 bucks a month is we're, we're sort of coming into sort of make it more affordable for people that couldn't afford the thousands and thousands of dollars. And for that, the difference in pricing between the two is that you get to choose a site with a, with a pre-design already in place that has the colors that, that, that we recommend. So if you like a palette of colors that fit a certain design, you choose it you go with it and then if you want to modify that going forward you can but the sites are perfectly good and we've already got many people out there that are already sort of seeing great results from 39 bucks a month wow. so the difference in pricing where we were before and where you are now is that we still run that um uh, customized design as we call it and people can still have something totally branded with them they want to f make it fit their blog they want to sort of have all kinds of things go on on the sites and we'll help them work through that as well but but the key is that we're trying to sort of bridge the two worlds of um, getting you going right now out of the box and then at the top end the professionals the, the if you like the sort of the art walls the chase jarvis the you know all those guys that use our um, our our uh, products simply um, 
you know, want to differentiate themselves in, in their way. Yeah. It's all the same engine underneath. So what, for, for an average person that wants to jump in, say I decided, hey, I want to I get into a live book site. I pull the trigger from start to finish, from the time I plunk down my credit card to the time that I'm Twittering to people to go look at my new site. What what time? How, what's the time span I'm looking at? Um, it, it it varies. In all honesty, um, there's no reason why you couldn't go live within minutes. Uh, the the limitation of you going live is more to do with the way the internet works. In that you get given an instant site that's running in a temporary URL within our domain, and then you have to allow um, the, the DNS changes to work through the internet, etc. So the problem that you find is that yes, I'm ready to go and why can't my site be seen yet? Well, it's because the internet yet hasn't caught up. Uh, but having said all that, in parallel, getting the site up is, 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 um, is easy for us. You have to populate it. So where are all your images? Where's the words describing you? What does the contact form look like? Right. So there is a lot of work that somebody has to do in parallel anyway. So though we can technically and theoretically get it up so quickly, uh, the fact is that most people don't because they're trying to populate their site and so everything works seamlessly together. Okay, now take it a level further. Now let's say I'm a photographer, I get my site up, I'm happy with it, it's going, and I am a fine art photographer and I want to sell my work through my site. How, how would I make that happen? So, so there's, there's many parts of selling your work through your site. So, so um, you know, one of the things that I often talk about is it's not just about selling your work, but you also want to sell your services as well. So somebody, um, you know, somebody, you have a fine art, but you might be looking for commissions. You might be looking for projects from agencies. Uh, you might be looking to um, sell images over and over again. Uh, you simply might want to promote with an image and then, you know, sort of sell a different image. You might want to do limited editions, etc. The point of all of that is that there are, depending upon the type of photographer you are, so a wedding photographer has a different requirement to a commercial photographer, mm -hmm. different again to sort of a fashion photographer. Uh, and, and as a result, we, we work with networks of partners that sort of all have particular values that sort of integrate into our solution. Yeah. So the answer to your question, it depends. Um, the key is working out what kind of photography you're doing and what, what kind of thing you're selling, making sure that we bring visitors to your site through, um, you know, not just through search, but also allowing you to be able to promote yourself out to the world and sort of keep in contact with your, with, with your customers, bring them in, show you off in the best light, and then provide whatever um, integrations you need, either from within our own stable or from partner stables to say, here's how you can now get a site. So, for example, in the wedding photography world, you've done your you've done your gig, you've got your pictures, and we work with a company called Pictage, who mm -hmm. takes our takes our um, images and they put them through their engine, so that end users of the uh, sorry customers of the wedding photographer can now get image direct, no human in the loop. So, there's all kind of efficiencies, all kind of partners we work with, so that we provide the right solution at the right time. Uh, fulfilling their need rather than just saying one size fits all. That's great. That's great. So, and you help facilitate that whole process. So if it's a photographer that's just, he's a shooter and he doesn't really want to be bothered with all this stuff, which is why he's bringing you into the loop. Do you help with all that integration? Uh, absolutely, and, and and again, it just just depends on on how far you know, sort of w w what they're doing. Sometimes it'll just be a sort of get in touch with Pictage or, or get in touch with you know, whoever, whoever the partner is or sometimes it is, you know, we'll help you integrate. And it, 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 I have to say it varies um, 
customer to customer and the reason it varies and, and why we're so I might, might speak biasly but why we're so good at what we do is that you know when you look at our website there are phone numbers there and you can call us up and you can have chats with us and you can email us we're a very contactable kind of company and in this this modern age where people spend all their time sort of you know talking through computers with each other even though they're other side of the table we find that personal touch is, is a very helpful thing so and, and it is because life is complicated and despite all this wonderful technology it does get more and more complicated so we're there to handhold and take the customers through the right route to solve the right problems with the right solutions great john another question has come in on twitter it's from a gentleman by the name of frederick soon and he wants to know Will there be any multilingual support coming? Well, there's um, two questions around. Well, in fact, there's three questions that spring into mind around multilingual. Um, so first is, um, do you, you have, um, are we talking about French and German, or are we talking about Korean and Japanese? Um, <laughs> Double bite, right? That, that, that's a hot, that double bite exactly. So that's so that. Does that challenge uh, the second uh, challenge is? Do you mean in our own product within the edit suite, or do you mean displaying those characters up on the website? Um, the fact is that um, up on the website through our edit suite, which is if you like our control panel for how people can manage content, if you type in. Um, French and German words, then French and German words will be what appears. So, so essentially, as far as your customers' customers are concerned, uh, we already have that support because whatever you put in there. And though we don't support double bite um, in in displaying that, there's no reason why you can't take um, uh, that kind of message and you know, sort of, if you like, create images almost that sort of provide the instructions even in in Chinese and, and put those up there. So for, for our customer's customer's point of view, our customer's customer's point of view, um, we support it in, if, you, if you take what I've just said as being a real meaning of the word support. When it comes to the edit suite, um, yes, we have plans, um, but at the moment the, the market is so massive in terms of the English-speaking world that um, we're really focused on not you know selling into the US marketplace into the sort of the Antipodean friends that we have down in Australia to my own country back in the United Kingdom uh, we've hardly even touched these places outside of America we've hardly touched markets outside of um, photography either yeah. so so much opportunity without putting our energy and resources into building support for other languages when at the end of the day um, most people are concerned about what the customers are, are looking at right so right. yes we have plans but 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 I, I don't think it'll be coming to sometime soon would you say those plans uh what you just said about you know tackling markets outside of photography would you say that you would tackle say the design space before you would add a uh, you know a double byte language for example Absolutely. In fact, if you if you look at our website today, we're already selling into the interior design, the architects, and the graphic design marketplaces. Um, what, one of the um, switches that we made when we went live with our product, uh, with our sort of um, pre-designed product, is that um, we look we look at the creative professional. In other words, if if you have a sensibility for a design, for a, if you think about sort of people that work in the sort of the creative professional, as we call them, those are the people that are looking at our world and saying, "God, if only I had something like that to show yeah. off my stuff." Absolutely. That's what I would like. So, absolutely, we're doing that now. And 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 also, by the way, on the international front, we only promote um, ourselves in, into. Um, 
the English market, English-speaking markets, you'd be amazed at how many people out of South America, from Germany, from um, the Scandinavian countries, contact us, buy our sites, look us up. Um, we have got international coverage, so I guess that's hats off to people like yourselves that sort of are so good at sort of taking our message and just telling the world about it. That's that's the power of the internet again, right there. Yep, yep. You, I'll, I'll tell two of my friends, and they'll tell four of their friends. So. There you go. <laughs> uh, a little more than two, but <laughs> so uh, looking forward, um, or even looking current. You know, I have a I have a, an iPhone here that I'm. I'm consuming more and more content on. I'm doing more and more things on it. Uh, it, Things that I couldn't imagine even a year ago doing on a mobile device. Um, Are there any plans at Livebooks to allow the management of these sites? A, you know, if I'm a photographer and I want to make changes to the, to the lineup of my images, will I be able to do that on a device like this? Or, and then the second part of that question is, what about when people hit a live book site with a mobile device? Say it's a an iPhone, a uh, a Droid, or something like that. What's the experience that they'll get? So um, the iPhone, in particular, out of all those devices, uh, wonderful as it is, um, they seem to not agree with the idea of flash. Yes. So when you hit when you hit a website, uh, a, a live books website with us, um, what happens is that you get a little page warning. Now, curiously enough, though, though few people realize it because we're not built it this way, um, when you actually hit a live books site and you get that and you and it won't do flash, there's a little link there that will display that ghost HTML site I spoke of, and oh, you can right. see it. Now. That works because um, I've tried it because I didn't believe that when I first heard it. And <laughs> I, I joined the company, by the way, about um, two, three months ago. So oh, okay. I sort of um, I had I had a look and I thought, oh, my goodness, it does work. What we need to change is for that to sort of say, oh, hello, this is an iPhone that's arriving at my site, and I better automatically display an iPhone page. And we do indeed want to want to move and support that. And as we do that, then the site will be tuned for an iPhone display. So, so yes, we have plans. Yes, we're well aware of it. And again, going back to who our immediate customers are, um, you know, does a commercial photographer really show its, you know, put, put its um, best foot forward by showing their images through an iPhone to the art buyer in an agency, for example? So depending upon the customers, yes, it would be great to have a slideshow from the wedding, and that probably would be the first place that we'd actually put our energy and focus. Um, the second part of all of that, of course, is you know iPhone apps, which is a different story altogether, and whether or not we do iPhone apps for the consumer, i.e. our customer's customer, or whether you do iPhone apps for um, our uh, immediate customers, and, and that's all in the, sort of the melting pot at the moment. Great. Well, you guys have, like, you have a lot of growth of he- ahead of you, it looks like. We, we think so, yes. And uh, it's a, the, the challenge, of course, is that sort of there are so many different directions and pulls that you can have um, in terms of what is actually best for our customers. So our customers are about business. They're about how do I make myself stand out from the crowd, make sure people love what I do, and buy my stuff. And what we're trying to do is work out, so what have we got in our kit bag that will allow people to do that better than anybody else? And yes, we could glibly sort of say, there's your iPhone app, knock yourself out. Uh, we don't necessarily think that's the best foot forward in terms of solving the business problems that our customers and our future customers we think are facing. Absolutely. Okay, John, I know it might be a little risque for me to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, I know you guys have recently received $5 million in funding. 
what have you done with that giant bag of cash that you just received and how has it changed how the, the company is moving forward? Well, the, the, um, the, 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 I guess the, the most obvious thing is that we've uh, moved into these new marketplaces. So, so literally uh, four or five weeks ago, we, uh, we launched into these new market spaces with interior design and with um, architecture uh, to actually move into new markets. costs money, so money can be put into that bag to actually help ourselves market more. Um, there are things that we want to do with our technology that we were talking about just now. So we put some of that money aside into there. Uh, there are things that allow, that allow us to change our business model. We put money into there. So we, uh, needless to say, uh, we've got more than ideas we're acting upon it because we actually had to have these ideas to actually raise the money to begin with. So we're very happy with the, the fact that sort of the investors not only believed in what we're talking about but, but committed in this climate to, to what we're about and uh, so far so good. So you'll keep on seeing new directions and different things coming out of Lightbooks um, and uh, that hopefully will never change. Um, we, we, we like to be on the edge of things and we will continue to be so but uh, we've, got, you know, we, we've got a good, good base now to work from and we're uh, steadily rolling out according to our plan that we, we lay down to our investors. Excellent. Well, John, where, where can people go to look at sites that were created with live books? What are some, some more popular photographers that are using the service? Um, oh, my goodness. There's, there's so many. Um, it, we actually sort of uh, list a number of them actually on our websites and, oh, okay. and, and in our sort of own marketing materials we're promoting all the time. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, the names of sort of um, you know, people like Chase Jarvis earlier yeah. on um, – and I mentioned Chase just simply because I think, particularly with this crowd, he he has probably got quite a large following. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we different photographers are famous for different reasons. Uh, if you take Harry Benson, um, who has made a brilliant living out of his uh, his photography over the years, uh, runs his stuff there. The Richard Avedon Foundation runs uh, their website with us. It goes on and on and on. With the, the, the guys that sort of founded the company all those years ago have just done a remarkable job in, um, in, in bringing the best, and, and I truly mean the best photographers onto our platform. I'm very happy uh, to have them there. So, um, and, and now with this new investment, we've now got more and more people coming on and um, hopefully we can be the launch pad for new photographers going forward. Um, we have an education platform and people can, as students, can now get access into our world. Uh, that, that The new promotions will start up with that in the new year. Uh, we're just widening ourselves as far as we can in sort of all corners of the photographic world and in all corners of the creative world. So um, rather than listing off names, uh, come have a look. And where, where should they go? Is it just livebooks.com? Just go to www.livebooks.com and, um, and uh, click on the buttons and have a look and come try out the trials. That's what I would say. Have a look. Excellent. Well, thank you, John. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and the This Week in Photography audience tonight. Frederick, thanks so much for your time as well. Great to talk. You're quite welcome. That was John Philpin. He's the chief marketing officer over at LiveBooks. You can uh, find out about all the stuff that he was talking about at LiveBooks.com. And there you go. There's the interview. And, and for those of you listening to us live, of course, you'll hear that uh, in the uh, the actual podcast uh, that was uh, previously recorded. And so, um, so there, that's... Uh, uh, Anyway, so that's uh, once again the Live Books CMO, John Philpin. And uh, now we're going to jump to uh, listener questions. 
and we've got uh, a couple of them. The first one I'm going to throw to Ron, uh, and this one is from uh, Jonathan Danforth. And he said, I know uh, that you're trying to minimize the video chatter on the show. That's fine. Um, uh, but I wanted to uh, know from uh, my expert counsel uh, their opinion on video stabilization. I'm looking for something portable and compact uh, that I can use uh, to keep the video shot with my 7D stable. Dest- despite my best hand-holding efforts, uh, the videos uh, make me want to throw up. So, Ron? Oh, boy. So many answers to that. Um, you know, a classic one, of course, is there's this little device called a tripod. It's crazy, it's, isn't it? Otherwise <laughs> known as sticks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Never bad to have around. Right. Uh, you know, but part of the reason why you shoot videos is you want to get this, the understanding of what the scene is doing. And I think a lot of people don't realize that moving the camera... Uh, it's sort of like shooting in 3D in the sense that it, it brings out the relationships between foreground and background. So you don't want to just be sitting on, on a tripod or on sticks. And, and even if you're you know, rotating around the center point of the sticks, you're not really getting much of a perspective shift. So you really do want to be moving that camera if you want to help the, the viewer understand the depth relationships. It's one of the strongest differences between photography and uh, uh, you know, between still photography and video photography is that ability to convey uh, information about depth just by moving the camera. So, you know, there's a few different things you can do. And I've seen a lot of really jury-rigged solutions where you stick a camera on, uh, you know, a, a, an office chair and roll it along. Um, there are Steadicam devices. And if you Google Steadicam, you know, there's a Steadicam Junior. I can't remember what it's called. Merlin. Merlin, and we, right. And we own one, actually. We own a, um, a Merlin that we actually bought for the 7D. And yeah, it and works great. Yeah, it's cool. How, how much did you pay for that? How I think we paid that? seven, seven or eight hundred dollars. Yeah, and, and it's you know, and you, I gotta tell you, you think that oh, you look at this little thing and you think I don't really think that that's worth seven hundred dollars. And when you get it and you look at the uh, the the quality of the work and the and the and the amount of control you have over it, it is not just a little weight. I mean, a lot of people make yeah. these little Rebel ones, and you can do that for like twenty bucks. You can make one that just adds more weight to your camera, and it'll be smoother when you're shooting it. And that all makes sense, but uh, the Merlin is something that is, you know, I, I couldn't build in my garage. It's, it's very right. complex. Right. Uh, but I have seen some good online tutorials for building something. It's more than just adding weight to the camera. It's sort of adding a counterweight that mm-hmm. if, you, uh, if you set it up right, it kind of, you know, uh, basically sways in the opposite direction that you're moving it. So it kind of does that stabilization for you. Uh, and, you know, the nice thing about doing something like that, if you do spend 20 or 30 bucks making your own, is... You understand where it's at. You haven't spent a whole lot. You really understand the concept. And then if you realize you need something that's more uh, and you're going to be doing it enough, then you can buy the higher-end pro gear. Uh, and the other thing I would say is that there are some very good post-processing tools for removing yeah. some of this, uh, this you know, jitter and stuff you get when you're, you're hand-holding something. I, I mean, I, I worked a lot on that, uh, putting some of that into uh, some of Apple's tools. And uh, there's some, some pretty cool algorithms out there for doing that. The thing that you have to know about that is... Uh, if you're going to be stabilizing footage using a post process, it's going to have to kind of crop in on the image. So you're probably going to shoot a little bit wider uh, than you normally would, knowing that the stabilization is going to have to throw away stuff around the outside edge to be able to stabilize on that. So you know, set, set your lens, you use a slightly wider lens than you would normally want for the shot in anticipation of doing that. And I have to say, we, we use motions uh, stabilization a lot. And uh, for for the seven D specifically, so you'll be hand holding something, and you have just a little bit of motion. And the this I've been told, and I I don't know this. Maybe you guys know more about this than I do, but I've been told that the way that the CMOS sensor is is managed inside of an SLR is a bit more rigid, uh, or um, than the 
the way it's handled in a standard video camera, like the way that it's 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 floated in there, and it actually creates more jitter than you would get from an, like a regular little video camera that that you'd have. And I don't know whether that's true or not. That's what I was told by someone working on it. Uh, but the point is, is that is that uh, we find that there's a lot of little jitter that we have to handle, no matter how uh, steady we try to hold it. And the motion stuff has just. I was really surprised at how well it just kind of cleans everything up. You know, lots of little pops, lots of little things, and it just immediately clicks it. I think the other thing that if you feel like you you want to throw up, I think this is more than just a little jitter. Uh, another <laughs> thing is thinking about how you uh, are shooting. One of the things that's tempting when you're doing this as like a photographer, you kind of follow the subject around. So you're, you're sitting there moving around, and you're constantly panning back and forth. So so if a person is, is like, let's say, changing their, their uh, weight, back and forth um between a uh, you know two weights you're, you're you're going back and forth like this and that'll make people want to throw up uh one of the things you have to get kind of used to is that a lot of times you're framing the scene so you're when you when you hit the video you're going to hit you know uh you're you're letting someone do something in the frame and you'll get a kind of a second nature of actually pegging the position of your camera to the background not to the foreground you're making sure that they're framed roughly correctly but you're letting them move inside of that frame you're letting things happen inside of that frame and not following everything that's moving that's part of what people do when they shoot video uh that don't do this a lot is they try to keep on moving with everything that's going on it's you know it's just like when you're shooting a photo you really want to sort of visualize in your mind you know, what picture am I going to capture? And you want to, you know, before you press that, that shutter button, you kind of should head in your head, what's the photo I'm going to get? And the same thing is true with video. And you want to sort of, sort of pre-plan, where do I want the camera to start and end for this shot I'm capturing? You know, it shouldn't just be a totally reactive thing, like you say, uh, following somebody around. It should be, okay, I'm going to try and tell a story with my camera movement, just like I do with everything else when I take a photo. Uh, where am I going to start? Where am I going to end? What's the camera rotation going to be? What's the zoom going to be? You know, whatever it's going to be, have a purpose for it as opposed to just being reactive. And that right there will get rid of a lot of the vomit. <laughs> vomit, vomit. <laughs> All right, so there's our little video segment for the uh, for the week. And Actually, I've got a few, uh, few oh, things to add in right. there if I yeah. could. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, part of the question was really about what they can what they can buy or what they can add to their kit to uh, to help keep things more steady instead of just technique. And there are a couple of really cheap solutions out there. Someone in the chat room just pointed out uh, steadycam.org, and that's steady with a Y, steady uh, with a Y, cam.org, has a do-it-yourself how to buy some parts at Home Depot and make a pretty nice steady cam rig for, it says on here, just $14. So there's that option. And then there's also, I've been looking on Sammy's website trying to find the name of the product, but of course I can't find it on there. But I saw in their store, and they actually do have a picture. If you go to sammys.com and you click through the video and you look at the video stabilization category, they have a little tiny thumbnail picture up there and three little itty bitty images. And the one on the right is a looks like a big C-shaped piece of plastic with a little platform on the bottom. And the camera mounts to that. And so you're holding the camera above it instead of actually holding it like a normal DSLR. You're holding the camera from above like it has a big handle on it. And just changing the position of how you hold it is really uh, really effective and it makes a huge difference and i've seen that in the store it's like 20 bucks or something like that and uh small and lightweight and just an easy thing to throw in your travel bag so that's something to consider as well absolutely that's fantastic i i know i used a uh kind of a, a homemade fig rig um in uh in zimbabwe it turned out great it didn't make it more steady but it just made it it's a much different feel every time you hold the camera in a different way uh it's a whole different feel now next question for steve um, this is uh, from Rob Ryan, and he says, uh, Am I correct in thinking that using Nikon's high 0.3.7, etc., and low 0.3.7, etc., ISO settings are uh, just pushing the sensor's designed range 
um, for example, in the D90, uh, 200 to 3200, and thus a potential loss in pixel depth. I was uh, uh, naively using uh, low 0.3.7, etc. ISO settings, assuming that it was like using higher quality uh, low ISO film, but uh, only just realized that there might be a, a loss in pixel depth and um, that I should only do that when the lighting conditions demand it. Is this correct? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, Rob, you're, you're right on this. And I, I too, had the same idea. I think those of us that, uh, that have uh, migrated from film to digital uh, still have that um, uh, drummed into our heads. And it, it does hold true for the most part that, uh, you know, the higher the ISO, the more um, noise and in film it was a grain that you would get, which would uh, deter quality. Um, but when on the opposite end, when you go lower... Um, you're always going to have sort of a higher quality. But um, I know with the Nikon cameras, and I'm assuming it's the same with, with uh, many of the manufacturers, there is the range of ISO, which the engineers have deemed to, to, to be the, the best possible range for, for the best possible results. And they've also um, included on the high end, um, higher ISO, like on the, the D3S, it goes up to 102,000, an astounding 102,000. The, the actual range um, only goes up to 12,800. So anytime you go above that into the high 0.3, 0.7, um, Nikon is saying, yeah, go there if you're going to want to get the picture. And sometimes it's the only way to get the picture. But we're not sort of um, uh, kind of endorsing it as a quality that we're comfortable with. So I'm glad it's there. And it actually does work. And on the low end, um, with most digital cameras, the lowest ISO that's printed is kind of the sweet spot for maximum dynamic range and color saturation. And as you go down further to low 0.3.7, in essence, you're, you're getting an ISO of, you know, 150, 100, and then 50, um, which in theory sounds like it would be, um, you know, more resolute and, and higher quality, but there is a compromise that's happening, um, with, uh, the dynamic range and and uh, the pixel depth, as as Rob mentioned, so um, you're often better off on the low end to use a neutral density filter and maintain uh, the lowest ISO that the camera allows you to shoot at. Uh, but that said, um, you know often it's it's not easy or practical to to pop on a, a, a neutral density filter. So going to the low end um, will allow you to, you know, get the picture by if it's extremely bright and, and you want to have uh, some selective focus with a fairly large aperture. It might be the only way to do it uh, short of a, a neutral density filter. And on the other end, um, when you need uh, the light is really low and even your D3S isn't doing it at 12,800, then you can venture into um, the high 0.3 and 0.7 and see what you get. Often, if you're converting to black and white, um, it can be really, really nice, and you can use that noise uh, to your advantage uh, for effects. So, so I hope that answers that. Fantastic. Anyone else? Uh, any other input? I think that was a great, great answer. Uh, last one, and and we're gonna um, we're gonna point this one at Joseph. Uh, this is from John Healy, and uh, he said, "I'm from Ireland, uh, but I'm traveling to Naples, Florida after Christmas uh, for the New Year. There are always uh, a fireworks. There's always a fireworks display at the beach." From Naples Pier on New Year's Eve, and I'd like to try to get some good shots of it. I'd really appreciate any tips or advice you can give me. Um, and uh, so that so that's the uh, that's the question. What do you, uh, Joseph? Have you done any uh, fireworks photography? 
You know, it's funny. I actually haven't done any digitally. Um, all my fireworks photography goes back to the days of film. So right. um, I, I haven't done it there. But I did do a little research on this. I got the question in advance. And there are actually two very good posts on photofocus.com, Scott Bourne's website, mm-hmm. uh, addressing exactly this topic. One from 4th of July this year and actually one from TWIP last year. Uh, but just so I grabbed a few points out of there. But you can definitely go over to photofocus and just do a search for fireworks and you'll find both of these posts. And uh, I think we'll put them in the show notes as well. But a, a, f- a few major points in here. So first of all, uh, plan ahead. Scout out your locations. Find a good spot where you're going to be in and stay in that spot. Get a get a tripod out to set up your camera and uh, just get everything set up ahead of time so that you aren't bouncing around when the fireworks start going trying to figure out where to go. And one of the things to consider when finding a good location is that you're not just shooting the fireworks. Right? If it's all you see is the fireworks against a black sky, it's not going to be that interesting. You want to find some kind of landmark to include in there, some buildings or a bridge, or if you're shooting over water, like I think he said he is, um, if you can get reflections off of a lake or probably not going to get reflections off the ocean, but it can still be a nice, uh, nice bit of the background. Um, so that's something to consider. Try and stay upwind of the smoke. That was a tip in there that I thought was very useful so that the smoke doesn't blow towards you um, and interfere with your shot. So hardware-wise, the tripod definitely cable release. If you can, if you don't have that, you can try utilizing the self-timer. Um, but with the cable release, then you can start doing bulb exposures, and that's probably where you're going to really want to uh, want to shoot this at. Set the aperture, get kind of a low ISO, um, get the aperture between f8 and f16, and have that bulb shutter, uh, you know, bulb setting uh, on the camera. Have the shutter release ready to go, and as soon as the fireworks are about to blast, just press that button down, hold the shutter open for a few seconds, and capture that image. That's great. Um, the only other thing, yeah, the only other thing that I grabbed out of there. Um, one of the older tips from 08 was about using the long exposure noise reduction on your camera and how that can be very effective. And I've done some research into this and actually talked to Canon about it. Um, that noise reduction, so first of all, it takes just as long as the exposure did to process. So if you do a 20-second exposure, the camera's going to process the noise reduction for an additional 20 seconds, which means that's 20 seconds that you can't take a picture in. And that noise processing gets applied to the JPEG but has no effect on the RAW file. So if you are shooting raw, as you should be, then that noise reduction feature is irrelevant, and it's just a waste of time. All it's going to do is affect the embedded JPEG and what you see on the back of the camera, but it's not going to affect the file itself. Fantastic. Uh, we just lost the other guys. Give me one second here. Sure. All of them. <laughs> Somehow, I, I've never had it where we lost two people at the same time. Wow. Well, so while you're getting that sorted out, since we are still recording, um, so let's see here. Is there anything else on there? Other little tips? Oh, yeah. If you using a flash is obviously not going to do you any good when you're shooting uh, when you're shooting fireworks. However, if you do want to put something in the foreground, like put a person in the foreground and have the fireworks behind them, then keep in mind you can have that long exposure, have them stand there and just pop the flash to fill them in, and you can get a really nice shot of having you know, your family or whatever standing in the foreground and the fireworks going behind them. So. Uh, just because it's a long exposure, even 5, 10, 20 seconds long, doesn't mean you can't have people in it. You just uh, you know keep them in the shadows and, and flash the flash when you want it on there and fill them in. And the flash is not going to affect the, the sky or the fireworks at all, of course, because that's so far away. So That's, that's a great uh, tip. Nice I, didn't even, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. I, I like that. I'm going to have to... Uh, I, I don't know much about flashes. I think that's, I think that's my, my whole thing. Is I, don't, I don't use them very often. I'm all natural. I'm kind of a natural light. And uh, so uh, let's see here. We've got uh, picks of the week uh, coming up here. And Ron even had one. He was all ready to go. 
Anyway, uh, but before we get to that, I just want to, of course, uh, thank our uh, our another sponsor. We've we've got a lot of sponsors this week, and that and I know that you know we're making some interruptions here, but uh, that's that's good for the health of the show. Uh, it usually means that there's more toys coming for the guys. That's what's paying for those little LCDs that are. Uh, those little uh, our little things. So anyway, the um, Squarespace.com, we'd like to thank. Uh, they are, of course, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website. Uh, it's easy-to-use UI. So you can, uh, you know, it's optimized. Whether you're a CSS expert or a beginner, you can do it all on Squarespace. Um, you know, the hundred, you've got hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can customize any of them. I was customi- customizing ours this morning. We're getting ready to launch a new Pixel Core, and, uh, and I actually was – this is – and I have to admit, I just went, this is why I love Squarespace – is I'm sitting there talking to the um, Carolyn who who uh, really runs the Pixel Core. I just kind of talked to Carolyn, and anyway, so um, and uh, we were talking about the new layout for uh, a new piece of the of the new website, and you know we we're just talking about what it would be like. And I was like, you know, it'd be nice if the background was darker. And she's like, what do you mean? And I just went into the paint, I selected the area, I turned it to black, I hit go, and I said reload the page. And she lo- so we're sitting there looking at it. She's in Toronto, I'm here. We're talking over Skype, uh, and uh, and we're just having this conversation and just making changes to the website there's no code there's no waiting there's no none of that and that's really why i like squarespace so um there's blog modules forums photo galleries form builders you know all the stuff you know there's a great uh, website tracking that's all built in of course you got permission access uh, it's a cloud architecture so you're not waiting for your server to be put back up if it goes down um you know a lot of it is just really really easy and if you want to test it out you don't have to put a credit card in you can just try to build it and uh, and see what you think. And uh, it's squarespace.com slash TWIP. That's squarespace.com slash TWIP. Don't need a credit card. You can just start building a test site, um, seeing if, if you like it, if it's something that uh, you want to do. Uh, and, you, and if you use the TWIP, you can get 10% off uh, when you purchase it. And it's, uh, you know, while it's a monthly fee, the thing to remember, of course, is that you are, uh, you would be paying that in server costs somewhere. So it's it's really uh, it's such a great, great service. So squarespace.com, again, thank you uh, for your support. And uh, now we've got some picks of the week. Uh, we're going to start with Steve. Steve, what pick do you okay, have? Okay, well, um, I, I was talking about the D3S. I got my mitts on it. I'll make it my pick of the week. Uh, I really Ooh. think it's a game-changing camera. Uh, you know, it just gives me tremendous confidence. I can photograph anything i hardly used my flash during that last assignment i suspect i would have used the flash a lot more had i not been able to get uh beautiful results uh, at isos as high as 12,800 um it's just an amazing camera i'm more handsome when i'm carrying it uh, i don't know what else to say so i i definitely make it my pick of the week but i just want to also mention to people that you know, just because this new technology came out doesn't mean that the great camera that you're using now uh, won't continue to perform in a way that uh, has, has kept you happy for a long time. Uh, I think really when you're going to feel a need to to sort of, you know, upgrade to this kind of technology is if you're doing a lot of extremely low light available work, um, it's not necessarily going to take better pictures than, you know, the camera before it, the D3, uh, which is also an extraordinary camera. As, as, as many of you people that are out there that have whatever manufacturer it is and are happy with their cameras, uh, it's not the technology that's most important. But uh, just because I got to play with it and actually push it uh, to its limits, um, I made it my, my pick of the week. Fantastic. 
Yeah, last week's chat, uh, Frederick had interviewed Moose Peterson, and he asked about the D3S versus the D3 and the D3X, I believe it is, mm-hmm. and you know whether you really need to upgrade and so on. So, and Moose had some really interesting things to say about that. So if you haven't heard that interview, go check that out. Fantastic. And uh, Joseph, what's your pick for the week? So I have two, and I picked two because my first one's very expensive. Uh, <laughs> the, for my first one is the uh, the Profoto lights, the Compact Pros. I purchased about a month ago a set of four Compact Pros. There's a little monoblock uh, Profoto lights, two 300s and two 600s, and I am in love. These things are mm-hmm. absolutely phenomenal. I'll, I'll do a write-up. Uh, maybe over the holidays here, I'll do a little write-up on kind of my first 45 days with the lights or something like that. Yeah. Talk about what I've learned with them, but um, they are phenomenal. And, you know, I, I priced out compared to Alien Bees, and obviously these are considerably more expensive, but, um, you know, did the research, just decided that I was going to, if I was going to spend the money, I was going to do it right and get the really good lights, and I am so glad that I did. They are absolutely... And what's the price, roughly? Well, so these, actually, I got these... Pretty good deal. So for the four lights, there are two kits. Um, each kit was a 300 and a 600. Now, these are not the R's, which have the radio slave built into them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason these were less expensive is because they're kind of the older model that being phased out. But a lot of people actually don't like the newer model because of the way that the, the front of the, uh, the light is shaped. It's, uh, it's like it's got its own light shaping built into it, which means you can't go just bare bulb on it. Um, so anyway, so it was about $3,000 for the set of four lights with umbrellas and, and light stands and a um, little carrying case. So fantastic! And a lot of a- money, but uh, you know, overall, well, well worth it. You know, it, it does, especially if you're doing this as a business, uh, you know, it's easy to skimp and, uh, we have a bad habit of, I mean, we spend, uh, well, we spend a lot of money on lights and, um, and it is, uh, you know, that's what makes it work. That's what, a lot of times that's what makes a great film that you're looking, you know, watching, uh, look great is great lighting, you know? And, and so it's, it's definitely important uh, and great photos. So now you had another, you had another pick. I do. I have a, I have a cheap one. Um, it's a new iPhone app. I saw this, I saw this in your link and I was like, and I went to look at it and I was like, Oh my gosh, I have to buy that. <laughs> it's called true HDR. <laughs> it's a dollar 99 app. And I, I don't know how true it is because it only works with two photos. But basically what you do is, is uh, you point your camera, your iPhone camera to scene. You have to have the 3GS to do this with the built-in camera. And if you've never noticed on the 3GS, if you tap on the screen, it not only focuses, but it bases the exposure off of whatever you've tapped on. So assuming that you have a scene with two dramatically different exposure areas, you hold the camera uh, relatively still. You don't have to be perfect. It will align the pixels in software. But you tap on the bright area and let it focus and, and, and expose and then tap the picture, take the picture and then tap on the dark area and, you know, again, wait for it to settle down and then take the picture and then tap the, the process button. And it goes ahead and blends the two pictures together and gives you a picture that you couldn't normally get with your iPhone. And I just got it last night and the sun hasn't come out bright enough yet for me to go outside and really try it out. But I've been playing with it indoors a little bit and you can definitely see where it's going. And it is, it's cool. It's really you know cool. that, you know that HDR, when we started doing HDR, you know, we were like, I think I felt like the only ones in San Francisco that were shooting HDR and, <laughs> and, uh, this was 10 years ago or whatever. And, and, you know, and I had, I had, um, hung out with some of the people who had really, uh, um, pioneered this stuff. And, and, uh, and so we were, you know, we were really into it and it was very geeky and it was very hard to do. There was like this crazy applica- you know, application and, and, uh, anyway, it's exciting to, you know, you know, you've really reached mainstream when there's an iPhone app, there's an app for that. You can make your own there's HDR. An app for that. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. So, um, Thank you very much. That's true HDR and a dollar ninety nine. True HDR, dollar ninety nine. Very good. So mine's kind of in the middle. I, I I just got this and I've just started to play with it. So um and I um so I don't know all the pieces of it yet, but I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I I got it actually as a fix for a uh, 
uh, it's a fix for a shortcoming in the Canon cameras, which is that the Nikon cameras you can have nine, you can do shoot nine exposures, uh, you know, for for HDR. So if you want to shoot an HDR, you can shoot, you can hit it, you can just say go, and it'll just fire off nine exposures, uh, two stops apart, and or one stop apart, or whatever you want, uh, and that's great. The uh, uh, the problem is the Canon only does well. My Canons only do three, which is kind of uh, makes me sad. So. Uh, uh, so anyway, so I wanted to have more control, and so I, and as I I started, I convinced on this on a private forum, and uh, and these and some of the guys that are really into this um, said, well, what you need is a promote, and so I got it, and so this is this is called a little promote, and what this does is um, it's I don't remember what the price is, I think it's like uh, five hundred dollars or so or six hundred dollars, and what it does is this just takes over the camera. Now this works with some different Nikon and Canon camera. This is I think this is primarily for the Canon or aimed at the Canon camera. Um, and that's what I'm using it with. And uh, what it lets you do is really take over. I mean, you can do, um, you can set all the exposures. You can have as many exposures as you want. You could even, I think, one of the things I'm trying to figure out, but I'm pretty sure I could do time lapse with HDR. <laughs> you know, like, like wait five seconds and then shoot three photos and then wait five seconds and shoot three photos and then wait. You really have a programmable attack without changing the firmware, uh, which is really the only other option uh, with this promote. And so it's got a USB, um, but it'll also do, you know, the the slate, you know, all the different, the the more standard controls um, that are all there. And it really is um, the kind of thing that if you're really serious about wanting to control your, your, your cam, your uh, camera, and I believe it works both with Nikon and I have to admit, I looked at it and I was like, it's got to work with my Canon. And so I made it, I know that it works with that. And, uh, but it's, it's called the promote. And I said, it's a little overkill for a lot of people, but if you're trying to figure out how you're going to, uh, you know, how you're going to get more out of it. And the re one of the reasons I looked at it is we had a client who has got a Nikon and he made fun of me on a, on a shoot. Cause I was like, 300 and what we were shooting three exposures was enough but he said well my nikon can do nine you know you know you know it's like and i usually shoot nine i don't know if these hdrs are going to work and and then i and then i went to greg downing who's like one you know as far as i'm concerned one of the experts in hdr i was like so is it three or is it nine and he goes well it just depends on the lights and da, 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 da. sometimes it's three sometimes it's nine and so i decided i need the power to be able to do all of it and so the promote gives you all of that and uh, the next thing by the way that i am going to do is the cd cdhk have you guys seen the cdhk no. Um, we'll do a video about it when we get it in. I did a lot of reading up on it, and um, CDHK is the firmware updates for a lot of the little point-and-shoot cameras for the Canon that give them, allow them to shoot raw, allow them to be programmable, allow them to do all the things that you wish a camera can do. Um, and technically, it's supposed to just be loaded on the SD card, um, but it's a, it's a bit of a hack. And uh, I'm literally... Um, <clears throat> I'm taking one. I'm taking one for the show. You know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy myself a little Canon point and shoot specifically so I can hack it. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> and, and we're going to see if we can, we're going to see how, how good it is. What we need um, within the, uh, for a bunch of our shoots is we like to shoot time lapses of uh, long-term time lapses of us doing big productions. And, uh, and so we want to have three or four of them and we just don't want to spend a lot of money. And we also don't want to run an SLR, have the, the mirror going up and down 10,000 times, you know, per shoot. And so, um, so the CDHK is, is the other option other than this, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna test that out and for a future episode of uh, this week of photography. Anyway, that's it. We've run this one all the way to the end. Uh, Joseph, where can people find you? People can find me on the Twitters at travel underscore junkie and online at confessionsofatravelljunkie dot com and josephlanashki dot com is my gallery. Fantastic, Steve. Where can people find you? Um, well, I'm going to do a couple of workshops coming up um, for mentorseries.com, uh, one in New Orleans, February 26th to 28th, and one in Morocco, April 8th to 16th. 
And uh, speaking Rough of international life. travel, Rough it life. Looks, I know it looks as it looks as though I might be going to Dubai for the Gulf Photo Plus uh, workshop. Where they're, it, it's a great organization there. They've got uh, I think Chase Jarvis and uh, Vince Lafore and David Hobby and a bunch of other people. So I'm I'm hoping that comes through. I, I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be uh, the week, the first week in March, I believe. Fantastic. So come to Dubai. I wow. I could be tempted. For the Morocco one, I mean, you're a Nikon shooter. Don't you need a Canon guy coming along with you to make sure that there's a balance to the education? <laughs> always, always. Although it is a Nikon sponsored event, but uh, oh, well. you know, you could uh, you know travel <laughs> on the second hand. Uh, yeah, it, Joseph's like, ah, <laughs> there goes that plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, boiled again. I would have got away if there wasn't for those meddling kids. So, uh, so anyway, uh, anyway, that's it. Uh, we're done. You guys got to go put that lens cap back on, get, take it off, see whatever you're going to do with it, and go on. <laughs> <laughs>